0: everyone and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host Pete Chapin from Continuum. When it comes to political innovation, the city is where it's at these days. City governments are attuned to the needs of local citizens and, if willing, are able to experiment with lots of different things that can make an obvious change in our daily quality of life. We're excited today to have the City of Boston's Chief Information Officer with us, Yasha Franklin Hodge. Yasha was appointed by Boston Mayor Maddie Walsh in June of 2014, and his responsibilities in this role include getting everyone in Boston as connected as possible. And that means enhancing the delivery of city services online, as well as improving access to technology and the internet for all of Boston's neighborhoods. Yasha has also served for nearly a decade as an advisor to Code for America, a nonprofit which connects people who are good at technology with people who are good at city-level government services. Not that this is always exclusive, with the goal of solving tricky civic challenges and encouraging more innovation in government technology. Yasha came by for a chat with Continuum's Toby Botorf, Vice President of Service and Experience Design, to talk about how Boston is using technology to drive new solutions for citizens and the challenges of doing so without becoming the juicero of cities. In other words, applying technology for the sake of it without understanding what we, the people, really need.
1: Yasha, you've been in your position, uh, Chief Innovation Officer for the City of Boston, for almost three years now. Um, It seems like cities are a really interesting place to work. They're becoming more responsive and experimental and progressive. Um, Talk to me a little bit about why you made this move and what you're hoping to achieve.
2: Sure. Well, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, cities are kind of where a lot of the action is right now. And, you know, you look at uh, other parts of our government, especially at the federal level, and it looks pretty dysfunctional. But at the end of the day, cities are where people live. And it's where we, uh, you know, it's where we we drive and walk and bike. It's where we go to work. It's where we send our kids to school. It's the parks we play in. This is kind of where the rubber meets the road, in some cases literally, between government and humans. And so I can't think of a better place to go and try to work if you want to make your world better if you want to use contribute, especially somebody with technology skills to uh, the place that you live and the communities that you care about. Being inside city government gives you this incredible opportunity to really work at that interface layer between people uh, and uh, you know, and 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 government institutions, and to to make those good for everyone involved. Yeah,
1: it's um, one of the things that sometimes shows up is a gap between. Um, People who are making stuff products or services and their customers, but I know you live in the south end I live in Dorchester. My kids are BPS kids. Um, This stuff is personal and really close to home Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I you you mentioned um, digital technology Boston is a super smart city. Um, I think that there's a ton of potential for um, digital technology to help make the city a place where taxpayer money is spent more effectively, where quality of life is improved, where citizens are more uh, engaged, have more of a live conversation with the government. And it's not this thing in city Mm -hmm. hall. Mm -hmm. Um, How are you thinking about... Um, making Boston a smarter city.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think with with digital tools, you know, we really think a lot about creating an interface layer for people, as as you know, more and more of our life is lived in the digital domain, and um, that includes interactions with government, that includes community engagement activities, and so how do we how do we put a face on city government and an interface on city government that. Um, you know, that works for people, thats not that doesn't require them to sort of understand what our internal org chart looks like in city government before they can start to uh, ask us questions or give us feedback or um, use us as a way to interact with uh, other aspects of their community. Um, so we really try to be thoughtful about how to build human-centered experiences for people who come to interact with us, whether it's online or offline. Um, I think broadly, though, you know, there, there's so many ways in which technology is is percolating into the practice of government um, and just you know people's everyday uh, urban life. Um, I'm always a little allergic to the term smart cities, which yeah. kind of comes in and out of vogue, but often ends up being shorthand for what I think is a sort of um, thoughtless and, and tech uh, and industry-driven application of technology to things that don't have technology applied to them. Uh, And you sort of end up sometimes, you know, running the risk that you're building the sort of juicero of cities where it's just like, let's (laughs) let's take a thing and put a computer on it because we can. Segways for everybody. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, ultimately uh, for us, you know, a smart city is a city that works for people. Like you have to start with humans and their needs and their differences and their similarities and their challenges. And then you start to ask questions of, okay, where can we use technology to make an impact on people's lives in a positive way, mm-hmm. um, and you can also challenge yourself to do that in a way that doesn't just resemble the kind of top-down. You know, we're government; we know what to do, so we're going to go and buy all this stuff, or put all this equipment in the street, or do all this. You know, all these things without talking to you first. There's a lot of conversations that we need to have. Uh, about how technology should integrate into our lives and where it shouldn't. Uh, And so we're we're trying to do that uh, with some of the work that we're doing. Um, One project, uh, for example, that we're we're actually pretty excited about, um, we're using a whole variety of sensors and cameras uh, at an intersection at Mass Ave and Beacon that unfortunately has had a lot of uh, crashes of cyclists and uh, between pedestrians and, and cars. Um, and we're using this, this infrastructure to try to improve safety on the road. Now what we don't know, you know we, can, we know certain things that, that can lead to a crash or lead to an injury, but what we're doing with this technology is to really try to understand all of the interaction dynamics that are happening in this space. Who's using the road for what? What types of vehicles are traveling? You know, where is their conflict? Where does a car cut off a pedestrian when making a right turn uh, across a crosswalk? Uh, how often is there a, uh, you know, a Lyft or an Uber that's uh, parked in the bike lane forcing a cyclist to weave out into traffic? Uh, you know, these kinds of questions that really are about the day-to-day interaction that happens on an urban in an urban environment what we want to do is try to measure that using technology so that we can take interventions that reduce risk that help bring down the, the incidence of, of things that, that we think are precursors to uh, crashes and injuries uh, and for us that's an example of really trying to root a very high-tech project in a very real human challenge that faces us in our urban environment that you know safety of uh, people is uh, is critical in the roads and something that we're committed to improving. So I think when we start from that frame of you know what is what is that change we want to advance, what is that impact we want to have, not what is that technology we want to apply. It lets us be truly smart, which is to yeah. be people focused.
1: It's it's amazing that you can take something that is a you know potentially an, an enormous problem like bicycle safety and and target just one intersection as a place where if we could fix it here, we could maybe fix it everywhere. And it sounds like you're prototyping. Yeah, that's exactly
2: right. Well, I think often, um, you know, why, why we like this kind of experimental model is when we have sales conversations about technology, and especially in the smart city space, there's sort of this tendency of um, vendors to come in and say, like, oh, you know, here's this thing. It's amazing. It does all this stuff. And here's all the problems it's going to solve for you and all the efficiencies you're going to gain. And the reality, when we look at this, nobody has proven most of this stuff. Nobody, nobody has like real case studies where they can say, you know, here's, here's the impact that this had. There's a lot of really incredible ideas. There's a lot of amazing technology and tools that exist. But all of us vendors, cities, academics, we're all learning right now, and we're in this very early phase where we have to be prototyping, we have to be building things without certainty, and then asking questions of those things, interrogating them, asking, you know, ourselves, even questions that are sort of orthogonal to the tech itself and the goal, you know, what are the privacy implications? If Mm. we put 40 cameras at an intersection, yes, it's for, for, for safety, but, you know, how do we make sure we're doing that in a way that's responsible and that we're Respects the the privacy needs and wishes of the people who travel through there. All of these are are uh, there are more questions than answers in this yeah. in this space right now. And so we think this this prototyping approach is really the way to start to unpack where real value lies and how we can have a really positive impact.
1: That's great. I'm really glad to hear you talk about um, some of the implications and unintended consequences. Because uh, sometimes I worry that the Internet of Things is um, accidentally or on purpose going to be the internet of surveillance nodes (laughs) um and nobody's asking for that but it might come with the deal
2: yeah yeah well and i think it will you know it will come with the deal if we don't think about it and we don't talk about it because there is this sort of um underlying idea that a lot of technologists have that more is better more data is better more sensors are better more resolution yeah. is better more pixels are better and in some cases you know that's that's you can point to a benefit from these things but Um, when you're starting to talk about things that are so deeply woven into people's lives, there is a question of when do you want to do something? When do you not want to do something? And maybe there's a nuance to it. You know, we may put up 40 video cameras, but in this project, we're not actually saving that video in the cloud. We're not streaming that anywhere. We're doing some analysis on the video on a local computer, and then we're discarding the actual video footage and saving only some resulting data about how many vehicles or people went through a an intersection. And that's a deliberate choice. But if you don't stop and have that conversation and ask those questions, you tend to default to just collect everything, save everything, put everything in a central repository somewhere. And I think that is the basis for a lot of this kind of unintended surveillance and, and frankly, a lot of security and privacy risks that we haven't quite wrapped our heads around.
1: Yeah, there is some of that unthinking approach to technology. If we can, we should. Mm -hmm. And if we've captured this footage, we should save it. And if we have it, we should give it to... The government, no, you right, know, right. the federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that we're not just talking about technology. You brought up the phrase uh, human-centered a couple of times and starting with people a couple of times. Um, people who work for the city are people, too. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about how you're thinking about the tools that you're developing for uh, government employees, not just for citizens. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Well, I think you know the the people who work for the cities are humans, and by and large, they're humans with a, a really deep commitment to to serve and to serve the city of Boston. And so, you know, we think about the tools that we give them and how that helps or hurts their ability to actually deliver. Um, you know, oftentimes people are using technology to do their job where. A hundred times a day, they might have to look up a building permit or dispatch a fire truck or you know take some other action that is core to what they do. And the way in which that technology integrates well into their work and supports that service mission or the way in which it becomes a source of frustration and aggravation, that has real world impacts for how well they can do that job, for the kind of service they can provide somebody. So we're really trying to take the same sort of human centered pattern that we would uh, apply to building something for a person who is a constituent coming to our website and apply it to city employees on the theory that when they have the right tools when it's easy for them when it uh, really helps them uh, deliver that incredible service that you know that's that's that benefits the city and that benefits them and everyone else um so this idea that you know just because you work for a city that it's okay to like build a terrible ui and then be oh we can just (laughs) send people to training and they'll be able to, to figure that out but like what is the cost of that? Um, you know, if that person starts their day dreading, uh, you know, the the six clicks they're going to have to do every single time they do yeah. a task, um, they're not going to be in the right mood. They're not going to be in the right, they won't have the time to, to really deliver for people. So um, I think for us, we're, we're, we're bringing the same iterative, uh, human centered approach uh, to internal tool development. We're testing things. We're working very closely with um, actual users to make sure that the technologists understand uh, what they're building not just as a series of requirements but as people and uh, the interactions that those people are really trying to have with uh, with the environment that they're in, in which they're working yeah
1: that's clearly consistent with stuff that we've seen. Um, there's been like, more projects than I can count that are uh, at the beginning about developing a better customer experience or citizen experience. And we find that the technology should not be aimed at them. It should be aimed at the people who are trying to serve them better. Okay. And it comes down to what I think is one of the most interesting questions in the in the space of Technology, which is what are the right jobs for digital systems, and what are the right jobs mm-hmm. for people? Because mm-hmm. um, we get that wrong in both directions. We give <laughs> robots jobs to people, and they hate those jobs. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and we make people rely on you know digital systems that are um, not really responsive in a way that people are looking for.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I and I think the 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 more you can. The more we can shorten the distance between the technologists and people using the technology, the better. One example, um, we built a system for the Boston Fire Department that lets them um, look up any address in the city and immediately see pretty much everything that the city knows about a building. Um, so they can see, Are there is there a building permit that's been pulled? Is the sprinkler shut off? Is there a transformer in the basement that might pose a hazard? Uh, did they get a code violation that maybe the building hasn't been kept up to code? And this is intended to make life safer for firefighters who may go into a building without any of this knowledge. But the way we're deploying this tool is in the dispatch center for the Boston Fire Department. And so the person who is responding to that 911 call and then sending a unit out to that building has this three-minute window from when that call comes in before somebody is going to potentially set foot inside that Mm. building. It's this tiny moment where they can provide useful information to the firefighters who are en route, and they can help them start planning out the scene. But they also have to do, you know, they have to be on the radio. They have to be getting more information as more calls come in. They're doing this incredible amount of work to synthesize and, and really try to make the fire response effective. And so when we build a tool for them that lets them you know, look up any address. It, it has to be something that works in that moment for that person in that workflow. And so when we built this system, we didn't, start with a list of specs and requirements and then um, you know send it off to a contractor to build we put a team in the dispatch center and we had them sit and watch and listen and just react to and see how people reacted to the, the moment of a call coming in and the way their attention got split and then we would build a prototype and we'd say does this work for you and mm. we'd get the most you know, fascinating subtle feedback about you know icons that uh, were hard to discern from one another when you know certain types of information was much more important than others, and we didn't have the right hierarchy or just the the you know ability to visually quickly scan something and understand yeah. the most essential element for that moment wasn't there. And through an iterative process, we built something that was uh, custom to their workflow and that in that moment, I think that's you know a, a process that can deliver uh, something really that's a, really unique,
1: that's a really amazing example because um, it speaks to it's it's very clear that um, lives are at stake. Um, the work you're doing there is for a high stakes, chaotic environment. And we we worked on a project with first responders and we heard firefighters talk about their spidey sense. Mm-hmm. And I love what you're describing mm-hmm. here as, um, you know, if you think about there being a data layer in cities, what that should be providing is greater spidey sense or ESP. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's helping people. It's not replacing them. Exactly. Exactly. Really interesting. Um, as you think about... Um, the city of Boston as a smart city. Um, It doesn't necessarily have to be about technology. This is one of the smartest cities on the planet in terms of people. Mm -hmm. Um, How are you thinking about um, connections with, whether it's educational institutions or startups, um, but basically your, your approach to partnership and mm-hmm. leveraging all that latent energy that, that lives in the city.
2: Yeah, well, we're, we're incredibly lucky. Um, you know, our uh, the academic uh, institutions in and around Boston are, are you know, amazing. And um, there is so much energy uh, that is, you know, that comes from our business community here. Uh, I think one of the things that really makes Boston an exciting place to be, whether you're in government, on the academic side, in business, is that um, this is a city that attracts people who really want to solve hard problems uh, and who are not necessarily as interested in the kind of the flashy thing or the you know the hot app of the week, but mm. instead are you know, willing to roll up their sleeves and go after stuff that sometimes isn't that sexy, but which really matters in, in people's lives. And so um, we are incredibly fortunate in government to sit in, in that environment and be able to tap into some of that energy. Um, we do a lot of partnerships with... Uh, various academic institutions, whether uh, you know that's uh, BU or Northeastern, MIT, Harvard. Uh, it's uh, not uncommon if you walk around, uh, yeah, an office uh, my, my department's office, uh, especially in the summertime you'll see you know, groups of, of young people that kind of cover a, a huge array of, of academic institutions who are working on these kind of interesting data challenges and or out in the field meeting with people from departments and trying to understand um, you know, how they can what they can do in six weeks that might make their life better. Um, we also try to really be a place where uh, researchers can uh, start to learn, in a more longer sense, longer timescale, what works and what doesn't work. Um, we're doing, uh, uh, we've done a lot as a city to help provide uh, employment for young people over the summer. And we have a, a fantastic research partnership with Northeastern University that uh, has researchers who have been embedded, uh, embedded over multiple summers to really try to understand what kind of impact that this has and um, how we can make the program better. And so I think for us, the, we're, we're, we're very open to these kinds of uh, partnership relationships. One of the challenges we find with these Especially with the academic uh, world, is sometimes the timescales don't mm-hmm. align very well. You know, if you're in if you're an academic, you're often thinking about two, three, four years to, yeah. uh, to conduct research, to write about it, and to publish. And you know, in the city uh, inside City Hall, the timescale is 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 more hours, days, or yeah. weeks if you're really <laughs> lucky. So I think sometimes it's a challenge for us. There's an impedance mismatch that exists there. Yeah. Um, you know, corporate partnerships can also be really valuable. Uh, you know but also sometimes have their own challenges associated with them um, you know companies uh, especially privately held companies uh, tend to be very protective of data but also even just basic information about what they're doing and so um, when we form partnerships with these companies your know, government is built to be open we have public records laws we really are sort of very for very good reason by design um, it's very difficult to, to keep things private inside government and uh, that challenge sometimes rears up when we're trying to do partnerships with private companies where sort of all go into it with the best intentions but ultimately um, you know their their business need uh, doesn't quite fit with how we work inside government but we try and I think we've had some really interesting successes with that
1: Hmm. Um, you mentioned uh, you uh, you listed a couple of universities that you partner with and I noticed in passing that uh, a couple of them are, are not actually in Boston. They're in Cambridge. <laughs> um, brings up a curious question. Uh, when I moved to Boston 12 years ago, I, it took me a while to wrap my head around the fact that greater Boston and city of Boston are not at all the same thing. Do you have jurisdictional challenges? Are, you must be solving for greater Boston, even though your footprint is just Boston.
2: In some ways we are. I mean, it is, it is a funny thing about the city and uh, uh, we, we run into this sometimes, you know, the city has a residency requirement for employees. And um, sometimes the first moment where somebody has the realization that Greater Boston and Boston are different places is when we tell them that they can't actually work for us unless they live within this specific geographical yeah. boundary. Um, but, uh, you know, I think what we are as a city, I mean, we're, we're the largest city in the region uh, by a good margin. And uh, as such, I think we are uh, the leader in, all, in, in some way. Uh, where we can, we partner with other cities, and we're, um, you know, there's a lot of smart, uh, uh, engaged uh, civic leaders in, in other parts of the the greater Boston area. Uh, but I, I do think it poses a challenge um, for us, uh, just as a city, we don't do a lot regionally, mm. um, and uh, much of the things, many of the things that really are. Important to us as a region, like our transit system, right. are managed kind of at the state level, and so it makes it hard for cities to kind of bring this experimental. Let's let's you know try new things and let's really um, let's really look for for opportunities to prove a, a different model. It makes it hard for cities to to do that when when there are things that are outside of our control. Um, I think there are other parts of the country that have uh, more established forms of regional governance where uh, sometimes this can come a little easier than it does here in
1: boston Hmm. are there are there some things you're seeing in other cities in other places that um are interesting to you that are i'm I'm curious how you how you share i hate the term best practices but you know what i mean
2: (laughs) yeah absolutely no there are and i I think this is yeah it's one of the most um exciting parts of my job uh outside of the day-to-day is to recognize when i when i can put my head up uh and and sort of survey the landscape that um I and Boston are, are just part of a larger network of uh, thoughtful, progressive cities that are uh, really trying to uh, integrate technology and, and sort of real human values together mm. in ways that improve quality of life. Um, two that I would call out specifically, um, C- uh, Seattle uh, has done some uh, a, a lot of great work, but Uh, especially around the issue of of privacy and really thinking about the role that technology plays in people's lives when a government puts it to use and how do you have a public conversation around that. They have a a privacy program, they have uh, privacy principles, and they've done incredible work to educate people across city government Uh, on how to think about this and how to engage with the public on this because there's no right answers when it comes to privacy. It's a balance. It's a conversation. It's always evolving as technology evolves. And I think their thesis is to say that it matters and it matters that people who are making decisions inside the police department or inside the transportation department have the tools and the skills that they need to be thoughtful and do the right kind of public engagement. So I think they can be um, a model for uh, for cities around the country in that in that regard. Uh, the other example that I would uh, cite is Chicago, who uh, was an early city to uh, engage around kind of IoT and smart city smart cities. Um, they have a project that uh, was uh, done with local university partners called the Array of Things. And what it is, is it's a a set of sensors and cameras uh, and computing equipment that can mount on a city streetlight and sort of survey the local environment. It can gather noise information, air quality information. It can uh, look at uh, the road and uh, see uh, how it's being used by cars and people where cars are parked. Uh, all this you know, kind of rich set of sensor data. But the way that they've done this project is to make it entirely open source. Mm-hmm. You can go on uh, the Array of Things website and you can download the hardware schematics for the device. All of the software that runs on this is open source and the data that it generates is open source. And they have encouraged and reached out to other communities uh, around the world to participate in this project and help them grow, help them find new ways to derive real value out of this data. And it's such a healthy contract to the kind of uh, sort of tech industry-driven approach yeah. to this stuff, and I think it it, it, it recognizes it's, ex- it's we're in an experimental time, and we need as many smart people working on this with as many different perspectives as possible to learn what can be valuable. So I think for me, you know, we just try to, as a city, I, and I as a as a leader in the city, to stay um, connected with other people who are doing these and similar jobs around the country and um, at conferences or just on phone calls get together and uh and learn what people are doing and uh um you know steal uh steal and uh and adapt and uh um you know i think it's certainly
1: non-competitive exactly exactly and
2: and i think and even even locally it's it's you know ultimately all of us are have the the same shared goal which is to make our communities great places to live and um that trumps any sort of regional or city to city competition that we may have
1: it's interesting to me that both of those examples you cited, um, you brought up some, some kind of big philosophical ideas around um, technology and governance, privacy in the one case, transparency in the other. Um, I saw where you um, commented on, um, the, in the conversation around net neutrality, you were arguing against the rollback of rules governing ISPs. Um, I have here a quote from you. Um, it's essentially the equivalent of a police officer throwing away his gun taser and handcuffs and saying, well, people were behaving themselves an hour ago so I'm trusting things will stay as they need to be. It sounds like you think a lot about these big issues because they they actually impact people's lives, right? Yeah no, that's
2: exactly right And I think you know something like net neutrality and having a free and open internet, I mean so much of my work and my team's work is uh, centered around the ways in which, the internet and technology can be a positive force in people's lives, uh, and you know we're we're you know although we're 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 thoughtful and careful, we are true believers that these are these are forces for good. But we also recognize that uh, the way that the internet has evolved, a lot of what makes the internet a powerful tool is the fact that it is empowering to people. It allows anyone to have a voice. It allows companies to. Uh, have a crazy idea and build an app and uh, make it available and see how the world reacts to it. And so when we look at the sort of federal policymaking that exists around the Internet and and net neutrality and privacy and some of these other issues, um, you know, we see a lot of risk to this idea that Um, you know, we can, we can have tech be a tool of, of personal empowerment, of educational empowerment, of economic empowerment in our communities. If it becomes something that is the sort of closed off province of a handful of large corporations that just see it as a, you know, go down the, the, the route of, of maximum revenue and maximum monetization yeah. of something that has a, a real profound social impact um, on our cities. And so I think what you've seen in the last few months as the FCC has shifted from a uh, fairly uh, progressive uh, mindset around a lot of these issues to one that is far more uh, corporate in its outlook, uh, that cities have stood up um, be and, and and really tried to fight back and 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 set a set of clear set of uh, ideas for what what we think the internet should be and why it matters in our communities because we're living in that every day and and you know if if the federal government can't step up, we have to
1: yeah it's a it's a fundamental question about what is you know, what is privately owned and ownable and what is part of the commonwealth. Right? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we start to see, you know, the idea that internet and internet access is a sort of utility that, that, um, you know, it's, it's a foundational layer for participation in, in today's society, um, you know, if we're building resources, uh, whether it's a, you know, a, a convenient app to pay your parking ticket without having to come to city hall or, uh, you know, a, uh, we're integrating technology into uh, you know, our public schools and our educational curriculum, or we're using uh, the internet to give people a stronger voice in what's happening in their community. All of these are things that depend on people having access and in a way that is um, really about a, a, a level playing field and an open internet. Um, so that's that's what we're defending. Uh, yeah. It matters.
1: Uh, I'm curious about what you were doing before you came into city government.
2: So, uh, before I joined the city of Boston, I was uh, uh, co-founded and uh, was chief technology officer for a company called Blue State Digital. Uh, And what we did is is work with uh, political campaigns, nonprofits, brands, advocacy groups, to help them use the internet to uh, build community around the issues that mattered to them. Uh, we were the primary tech uh, provider and did a lot of strategy work with both uh, Obama campaigns. Uh, we've done a lot of work in democratic politics, but we've also worked with brands like Google and Vogue uh, Organizations like the Met Museum to really help them build community around uh, the internet and to, 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 t- to tap into the things that uh, connect people with them in the offline world and, and make that relevant online
1: uh, So you were a party to the uh, astonishing Obama win in 2008
2: yeah one of many who uh, was a part <laughs> of that uh, that incredible moment um, but I think that was a that was a time when um, you know I, when Obama launched his campaign in in early 2007 he knew that he was going up against the sort of most established brand in democratic politics and a brand that really had a lot of organizing behind it for uh, with the Clintons and two uh, terms in the White House. Uh, and so he knew that he would have to build his own army, uh, for lack of a better word, to compete with that. And if you are starting fresh, if you do not have that uh, that long political career, the best way to do that is is online. And so we worked with the campaign not only to do things like email and fundraising, but to build a toolkit that let people organize themselves, that let people take the enthusiasm that they felt in Uh, a mid-sized city in Mm -hmm. Iowa or Arizona where the campaign wasn't uh, you know, maybe in Iowa, the campaign was investing resources, but in cities that had late primary, in states that had late primaries, you know, the campaign couldn't be there, but there were people there. Yeah. And those people, they cared, they were passionate. So we did a lot to create a toolkit that let them find each other, that let them organize, that let them put on events. We made the branding and identity of the campaign something that was widely available. You could download all the logo assets and, and adapt it. And so we had people in some states who opened their own campaign offices just unbeknownst to the people in Chicago yeah. and, uh, started doing canvassing with, uh, printed materials that they had made themselves using the things we provided were, online.
1: That was some great graphic design and mm-hmm. making it available to people. I do remember seeing this stuff just in more places than I could have thought imaginable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were working with the Obama campaigns, I was uh, working at WGBH, um, a nonprofit here in Boston, um, and great TV and radio station. Um, I remember you saying that um, you shouldn't engage people by asking, what can I do for you to make you love me more? But instead ask, what can I ask you to do to make you love me more? And I mean, that just seems really optimistic. It reminds me of JFK, you know, <laughs> ask not. Um, uh, what are you asking Boston citizens to do now? Yeah, uh, that will make them love the city more. I just think that's a great I, I love that question. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think it gets to the heart of it that that people want to care about things and it's really easy when that thing is your hometown and the yeah. place that you live and and the streets you're on every day. Um, so we're trying to create as many ways as we can for people to you know not just tell us when something's wrong or when they're when they're unhappy but um to be a part of building what's next in boston uh, we just uh wrapped up a, a, a planning initiative called imagine boston 2030 uh, and it's really about figuring out who we as a city will be um you know decades from now uh and You know, it started as almost a a master planning initiative, which usually focuses on things like land use Hmm. um, and zoning. But for us to really get it right, we felt like we had to start by talking about values and aspirations and really asking people to, to tell us and to engage with us and to talk to each other about the kind of city they want to have, the, the things that trouble them now, the things that they worry about in the future, uh, and the things that they're optimistic and excited for. And that became the basis of a plan that Uh, you know, is ultimately about how we can build a, a, you know, a a city that's equitable, that has economic opportunity, that is sustainable and addresses the the great Mm. challenges we face here as a coastal city around climate change. Um, And from that, we have created a a, a huge number of projects, some of which are zoning and land use related because we are a growing city. And the core challenge we have is how do we grow to a city of 750 or 800,000 in a way that preserves those values? But by starting with who we are and who we want to be. Uh, and then adding the, those questions of, of, of growth and, and, and you know what projects do we do and where do we build, where don't we build? what do we want to preserve? Uh, we we're able to create a set of initiatives that uh, some of which are starting now, some of which may not happen for you know another decade that we think will uh, help make sure we have a city that is truly reflective of Boston's values. And so that kind of an, an approach to, you know, things as, as, as sort of basic as planning. Um, yeah. We do this around, uh, you know, with transportation, we ask people to, to give us, to, to tell us their question about transportation in Boston. And some people said, you know, um, why can't I have a stoplight at the end of my street? And other people said, Why can't I take a duck boat to work? Um, you know, we had this this, this vast spectrum of uh, yeah. of interest and, uh, and and of ideas. But but letting people have that opportunity to to um, you know to, to to have that voice and to you know to and to help us and to ask them to think about some of the trade-offs that inherently mm-hmm. exist when you're governing and when you're trying to decide. You know, do we spend this dollar on expanding pre-K or do we spend it on rebuilding a crumbling fire station or do we spend it on a bike lane? You know, these yeah. are real questions and the more we can engage people in that in a substantive way and ask them to come along with us in that journey. I think we are both making, uh, you know, we are, we're helping to do our jobs better. They're helping us to do our jobs better. And we're hopefully building uh, a city that feels very connected to um, who we are and where we're
1: going. Yeah. It seems like that focus on people's, values and aspirations is not is, is very clearly um make sure that the work remains ambitious mm-hmm. and is, is probably the only way to take a long view but also it seems likely to to de-risk uh if you focus on technology you're likely to bump up against nonlinear changes and find that you placed some wrong bets. Mm-hmm. If you're placing your bets on people and what people value, mm-hmm. that stuff has more continuity. Yeah. Well, I think that's exactly
2: right. And, and you know, you think about to take transportation, for example. I mean, this is a, a space that has changed a lot already with things like bike share and Uber <laughs> and Lyft that have you know shifted the, the, the system and the network. But we're on the cusp of you know some really radical change um if predictions are right that autonomous vehicles become a real thing in the next five to ten years you know, we may see uh, some, you know, the, the fundamental ways in which we get around the ways we use land, the way we think about things like parking, the way we design intersections, the way we mm-hmm. design buildings that, um, you know, are the kind of interface layer between vehicles and, and the people that live in those buildings. Um, all of that's going to have to change. And anybody that tells you they have that all figured out is lying. Um, we just <laughs> don't know how that's going to play out. But if we can start to educate ourselves about where the technology is going and how things are transforming start to do early experiments like we're doing in the seaport here in boston where we have uh, a small number of autonomous vehicles that are already on the road and where we're learning not only uh, about technology and the um, you know ways to make it work but also how people interact with this in a real world environment Uh, And if we are clear about what our goals and values are as an urban place, then we will have the toolkit that we need to build the new policies, to make the land use decisions, to set in place the incentives and disincentives that will need to be there to produce a positive outcome for people. So we're going to have to roll with it. We're going to have to adapt. We're going to have to iterate. Um, But we're trying to equip ourselves for, for that unpredictable future.
1: You are making me excited to never leave Boston. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's so, the goal. That's the goal. Um, We're going to need more housing, so yeah. you've got to figure out where to put it. Um, I'm, I'm curious about what makes you optimistic about the future or our future here in Boston.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think, you know... Here in Boston, we're, we're, we're incredibly fortunate. We are uh, a healthy city, we are a safe city, uh, we are a growing city with a strong, diverse economy. Um, many of the challenges that we are facing, the most urgent challenges we're facing, result directly from more people wanting to be here than we have planned Good for and that we have built yeah. for. Um, and so, you know, I think that is, um, you know, it says that we as a city, not just in government, but as, you know, all of our institutions uh, and all of our people are doing something right, um, that this is such an attractive place. Uh, and so I I, I think we have, we have many bright decades ahead of us, some very big challenges. I mean, inequality is a real thing, and that will have profound impact on the city. Climate change uh, is hugely threatening to a lot of uh, the growth that we have. But I think the the people and the skills and the resources and the enthusiasm that are amassing here uh, give me a lot of hope that if if these things can be addressed and overcome anywhere, it's going to be here that it happens. Um, It's harder to find sometimes the, the optimism on the national front, but Um, I do think when I look at the number of folks who are in their 20s and 30s, who are making an explicit choice here in Boston, but all around the country to go and do work that matters, that gives me an incredible amount of optimism because somebody who is saying, you know, at the age of 25 or 26, you know, yeah, I could go, you know, take a job over here and make some money, but, you know. What am I doing? Who am I giving back to? How is yeah. that making the world better? And they're choosing to not focus just on material wealth, but on you know social wealth and social value. And um, I see that all over the place. I see that inside City Hall in Boston. I see that in cities around the country. Um, I see that, you know, in startups that are trying to tackle some of the hardest challenges that we face around energy and sustainability mm-hmm. and um, health. Uh, and uh, and you see that in our academic institutions as well that are really trying to focus, you know, places like MIT that have really made it their mission to uh, focus on stuff that matters and and to, to, to move the needle on that. So um, I think that, you know, when... Uh, when I turn off the news for a day and, uh, just think about, uh, what I'm surrounded with and the people I'm surrounded with, uh, it's actually quite easy to be, uh, optimistic about where we're headed in the long term.
1: Work that matters. Um, it reminds me of something that I saw on your Twitter page. Uh, your header image has a, a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, far and away the best prize that life has to offer is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. Um. Is he a hero of yours? <laughs> he is indeed.
2: Um, that, that's a that's a that's actually a poster that's up in our office, uh, in our uh, in, in in my department's office, and uh, it is reflective of the fact that there is both a lot of Teddy Roosevelt fans in the office, but also a lot of Parks and Rec fans. Okay, that is a uh, that quote was uh, with a slight modification was uh, part of the series finale of uh, of, of Parks and Rec. Um, that's great. But no, I, I, I do I think um, you know you look at uh, you. You look at this idea that says that um you know that that you have to do hard work there are there are real things to do there are real challenges that we face um but that you can go into that hard work enthusiastically that you can be optimistic um that you can be part of a team that you can be focused on values i mean you know um, I'm a big Teddy Roosevelt fan. I won't give his his whole biography here, <laughs> but you look at what he did throughout his life, and um, you know it's really is is a man of of uh, you know of that that kind of dedication, uh, but also that. Uh, you know real perspective on um, you know who we are as a country and uh, and what we should be focused on whether that's cherishing our natural environment or just being uh, fair and and reasonable to the working people of of the country so yeah um,
1: everything he did he did joyfully and tirelessly and um, through times of change probably as dramatic as ours right now so um yasha this has been fantastic thank you for Um, giving us a peek inside how you think, how the city works, and I think also a peek into, into our future.
0: Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thanks. The Resonance Test podcast is where we seek out people who are consistently able to go from inspiration and cool ideas to fully implementing them. Innovation in this form can be found in all sorts of fields, from health and tech to food and the workplace. And we love hearing how different people go about doing this repeatedly. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, it's not really innovative until it exists. If you want to learn more about Continuum and the work we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Our thanks to Toby and Yasha for their great conversation today. Many thanks to Kip, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Numerous gratitudes to Ken Gordon, our producer, for his masterminding behind the scenes. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears.